seated. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1-16. through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray. Lord, um, we just thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we thank you for the wisdom it contains, um, that we can know you through the Bible. Um, we just thank you for that. Um, Lord, I pray for the message this morning. Um, Lord, that it may draw us closer to you. Um, and, and give us just a little bit more wisdom uh, this morning. Um, I just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, today we have Richard uh, Lindstrom again. He was here a couple months ago. He is the youth and young adults pastor at Riverview Church. Um, so please uh, welcome him this morning. Did I need it right? All right, sweet. Morning. So you probably heard that passage here and like, wait, he chose what for a message to do? Talking about widows and stuff? Not a, a normal passage that we would preach on. Uh, but at Riverview, we're going through the, the whole book of Timothy this fall, and that's kind of where we're at. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just pick that passage to keep rolling with it. Uh, so can I catch you guys up on where we're at in, the, in First Timothy? So you're not let's like jumping in like totally out of context. Um, so the whole book of Timothy is written f- by Paul saying to Timothy, okay, look, here's kind of how you should be operating the church in Ephesus, kind of set it up structurally and things like that. So it's, it's kind of like a how-to manual on doing church. And so in the, in the first uh, chapter, he's laying out some of those, okay, a few reminders of, okay, you're going to have false teachers that, that come, things like that. And then, but make sure you're teaching the gospel. Here's kind of what it is. Uh, 
Christ came, died for sinners like us, you know, things that Timothy already knows, uh, but he goes into chapter two and says, okay, but now we're actually structuring it, chapter two and three, saying, I want you to have, like, you should have elders, you should have deacons, they should be these kind of, this kind of character, men shouldn't be angry, they should be praying, women should not be elders, those kind of things, um, and here's reasons why. Uh, and so the thesis of kind of the whole book is in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I am writing these things, this whole book, so that to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so all these things are so that a church can operate properly as the, this bastion of truth in the world. We proclaim the gospel. It's the only task people have to come to salvation is through the church's message. And then chapter four, he's like, steps back from the structural stuff and says, okay, but now Timothy, a few particular things to you as a leader. Um, just be aware that people are probably going to leave at some, leave the church at some point. Uh, there's a lot of false teachers out there. Not everyone's going to be the tr- a true believer who comes in, but keep on pressing on. Train yourself for godliness. Keep a careful watch on what you're teaching. And then he gets to chapter five where we're at and starts to go through this Chapter 5 up to 6, chapter 6, verse 2 is all about, okay, now, things of, of who we honor. He talks about honoring widows, then honoring elders, and then honoring masters as slaves. That's kind of where we're at for what this drops in. So he's in this whole context of saying, here's how we operate the church. You can see why he talks to, okay, how does the church handle this thing of widows? Because uh, especially in ancient society, widows didn't have any kind of support system beyond immediate family or the church. Today we have things in like, like a welfare system who can help out those, those things like that. It's a little bit more foreign to us in that regard. But there's still some good points for us to glean from this on, okay, well, how are we doing this stuff and why are we doing it? But as Paul's main point here is concerning our treatment of widows, he, there's an undergirding that he's kind of laying out throughout of saying, in order for the church to do this treatment of widows right, I need to t- a few times address how we show godliness within our own h- households, our own families and relatives. So as you're doing that, then the church can better do what it's supposed to do as a corporate body in providing for widows. So I'm going to go through the text that way. First, just talk about, okay, all parts he's talking about of how do we show godliness in our own immediate households and our relatives and then we can better understand what he's clearly trying to say for how we then honor widows as a corporate body of the church. Does that make sense? Okay. So it won't be like line by line, we'll kind of be hopscotching around a little bit. So he starts out, verse 1 and 2, the kind of transition from his teaching of saying, okay, Timothy, do these things, and into the widow's aspect. So that's why he says, older men, Older women, brothers, sisters, turn us into that family aspect. We'll pick up in verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is the first of three exhortations he gives for showing godliness in our own households. And this first reason is do this because it pleases God. Verse 8 gives the second one, saying, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially not providing for his household, 
He's denied the faith. So the second reason is it's, it's to keep the faith. Part of, that's part of how we, we do it. And the last, verse 16, he says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the third reason is that so that we do not burden the church unnecessarily. So we'll, we'll go through each of these and kind of tease them out a little more. The first one, verse 4, take care of our households by providing for them. All of us are like, well, yeah, I'm going to make sure my kids can eat, have a house, duh, move on. Um, but he gives, it's not just because, okay, yeah, that's just my duty. We do this because it does please God. Both that direction, parents to kids, that's the assumed aspect of Scripture. And then also here he's saying, now kids, so if you have, a, if, if you are a kid who's 13 or less, or if you are a full adult and you have parents who are elderly, you're still a kid to somebody. So it still applies for all of us. Kids should honor their parents, pay them back for all those years of changing your diapers by helping them in their, in their old age with all the difficulties they have there. Uh, hopefully it's not changing their diapers too, but that could happen. Um, this pleases God. And you think about it, well, how does this please God? Well, he's given us the command to honor our father and mother, right? We have that's in Exodus, repeated uh, in Ephesians. Uh, Deuteronomy, we have all, all these kinds of repetition of honoring our parents. And there's a necessary, there's blessings that kind of naturally flow from that. As we sow, taking care of our parents, we often reap things back in return. There's, there's kind of inherent built, built in economic blessings for taking care of your parents. It preserves an inheritance that gets passed along to, to the kids. It also, it's practicing this honoring of those who have been in authority over you. As, so you're, you're, you're practicing that as a pathway to success in all of life. But then the relational blessings are one of the bigger things that we don't usually think of. As we take care of our parents, we get, train our kids who are watching us take care of our parents. This is what what self-sacrifice looks like. It's not convenient to take care of your parents living in your home or if you're helping someone else take care of them. It's not convenient, but it's good for your kids to see that. We have one family in our church where they, the, the guy's mom has dementia and she's been living in their home with their family of like 10 kids and it's just chaos in some regards, right? But their, their kids get to see them to taking care of his mom, and they've, they've noted, like, oh, yeah, this is normal. That's what we do. We take care of our parents. And there's kind of a unique thing of them seeing that daily. So then they're kind of expecting that the norm, when they get older, they'll take care of their parents. So it's kind of that relational blessing kind of gets sewn into doing that. You also get to know your parents better. Uh, when you live with people, you know them better. When you take care of people, you know them better. Um, the more you do that, you have those blessings built in. And as we seek to please God by doing this, he loves to pour out blessings on those who seek to please him. Those are some of the blessings that he can pour out on us. But also, if we step back and just say, okay, well, how can this please God at all? Most of the time when we think about our good deeds, we think of, oh, well, our good deeds are filthy rags 
to God because they, they don't do anything for us for salvation. And that's a, that's a true, right doctrine that wants to not let us go into the heresy of some of the Catholic doctrine that says, oh, you do these good works and it's built up in this merit for people to help them get saved. But our good deeds aren't just always an attempt to justify us. In that regard, they are worthless, filthy rags. Like, they're just dirty diapers. But our good deeds also work beyond justification in that coordinating necessary outflow of justification that's called sanctification. We're growing in holiness. In that category, where we're depending on God and doing things to please Him, because we love Him, our good deeds do please Him. In Ephesians, he, Paul says, do, do these things and so, so you do not grieve the Holy Spirit by not doing them. If we can please God and grieve Him, our works do have an impact on that. Justification and sanctification are both important. And if we, if we try to blend those, we have a problem with actually doing good works. We should actually want to do good works because they do please God. We should want to take care of our, our parents because they please God. The question is, do we want to please him? If we, if we do, we need to remember to honor our parents and care for them. Not necessarily by having them live in our home, but that could be a way. That's, that's the first thing he, he says for us, how we show God in our households. First, take care of your parents. Second way, in verse 8, is so that we can keep the faith and not slander it. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That seems a little bit harsh at first because if I don't take care of my parents, I'm worse than an unbeliever? Really? Well, he's not saying that if you don't take care of your parents, you're necessarily lost and unsaved. What he's saying is even the unbelievers readily recognize you should take care of your parents. And you're not even doing that. Both scripture and culture would say you should take care of your parents, and you're still not doing it. That's ridiculous. Even they're doing that general revelation understanding of what's good. And secondly, you know you're commanded to honor your parents, and you're breaking that command if you're not doing it. You're saying you believe God's word and you're breaking it. Unbeliever, at least he says he doesn't believe God's word and he's breaking it. So in those two ways, I think there's an aspect of being worse than an unbeliever. But then second, it does bring slander on the gospel we say we, we believe if we're not taking care of our parents. Because I if the unbelievers do recognize that it's, you should take care of your parents, you should honor them, and we're not, they're going to say, so if he's not doing that, I'm going to kind of question that whole package deal he says is true and good. That whole gospel doesn't seem to make sense. Is, it actu is God actually good? Is it, does he even want his people taking care of those who have raised them? And we don't want to bring that slander because we're seeking to instead please God. And as, as a side note, he, he, in verse 8 says, taking care of our relatives, 
and especially members of our household. So household seems to be those who are immediate family kind of regards. Your siblings, your kids, your spouse, your parents kind of an aspect. Then relatives is like, well, how far out should I go? Like that second cousin once removed on the mother's side. Uh, how far? I don't think we're trying to find lines here. Your disposition should be, I want to take care of those relatives with a primary focus on the immediate household. The same thing we see in the the church. We want to love all the believers, but we have a primary concern for the believers in our local body. Similar with, so Paul Paul isn't bringing in a, a brand new principle here. We see this, parents are supposed to care for their children is an assumed priority for throughout Scripture. We see that in this passage of Timothy, we see it in Ephesians, we see it in Matthew 7, where would you guys give your son a stone if he asked for bread or a serpent if he asked for fish? Well, no. Assume that's that parents care for their kids. Also, throughout, we from, from Exodus, Ephesians, Deuteronomy, all are saying that children should honor their parents. And that siblings, in Levitical law, we see, okay, siblings to take care of their spouses, if their husbands, sorry, their brother's spouse, if their brother dies, kind of thing. There's a normal aspect where we're supposed to have this faithfulness to a duty towards the household. Then expands that saying we don't have a duty just to our blood family. We have a duty to the household of God as well. And so so the the two purposes we give so far, verse 4, Show godliness in your households, by taking care of your parents, because it pleases God. Second, verse 8, because it keeps the faith. And third, verse 16, because it, we want to not burden the church. The corporate, the corporate body shouldn't have to provide for what you as individuals should already be providing for. I'm not trying to be highly individualistic here. But the reality is we're trying to make sure people are doing their duties and practicing godliness in their personal life as well as corporate life. If the corporate body keeps swooping in, taking away the responsibility that we're supposed to be doing individually, the individual can't do it, and we're also enabling them to not do it. The body of Christ does not have, if we don't have people practicing on an individual level, the whole corporate body is going to be suffering and not doing as well, something as healthy as a corporate body. And so we don't want to put that burden on our, because of our failures on a personal level on the church and say, okay, well, I don't want to take care of mom, so you guys do it. That is not an option. So it is the, the body as the body is called to care for those among them who are truly widows, especially those within the household of God, we are also called to take care of our family because first, it pleases God, second, it keeps the faith, and third, it keeps the church unburdened. The the church is free to still be doing all the areas it's supposed to be doing, which is primarily focused on encouraging, building up one another in the truth of God's word. Pretty simple stuff, but hopefully remember those motivations. Our motivation isn't just, okay, I'm doing it because, oh, 
my kid is so cute or because my parent is so nice. It's because, no, this is my duty. I want to please God. I, I love pleasing God. I love to keep the faith and not have got the gospel slandered. I want to be seen for the goodness that it is. And I want the church to thrive. I don't want to put those burdens necessarily on it. With that background, he, he then can better understand why he's saying, okay, honor those who are truly widows. Verse 3, verse 16 has that kind of framing aspect of this whole pa- passage. Honor those who are truly widows. So let's look at, look at those. He first says, who qualifies as a, a truly widow, as he labels it? Who's truly a widow? Well, first, they have to be actually alone. Um, verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let, let, let them take care of them. So she's not alone if she has children and grandchildren who can take care of her. That kind of assumes proximity where they're able to be close to take care of her. But also, verse 5, she has to be dependent upon God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Her hope is set on God. She's leaning on God, looking to him to provide because she's like, I got no other way, God. I need, it's, it's, it's you or nothing. In the ancient world, a w- women couldn't find self-providing jobs as easily as today. So you can understand how that would really be a criteria. But the contrast it has here is the true widow has that dependence upon God aspect rather than a self-indulgent characteristic. It's not characterized by self-indulgence. Because that is like she's already dead. This is why, have you ever heard of the seven deadly sins the Catholic Church has? They kind of try to summarize all the sins we have in life and kind of like, well, these are kind of like seven root ones. Half of those, greed, gluttony, lust, are all expressions of self-indulgence. And they're all listed at some point in Scripture as things like, those who do this are as good as dead. They're killing themselves. Same thing here. Self-indulgent says, is dead even while she lives. The reality is if, we're, if, we're, if we aren't being self-controlled, we're leaning into self-indulgence. And self-control is the fruit of the Spirit that Mark's supposed to mark God's people. And so he wants that the widows we're supporting can be marked by that as well. But then he continues in verse 9 and 10, giving a few more details on what a widow is supposed to be like. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. So she's 59, we can't enroll her, I guess. Sorry. No, 60 is is, is a general description of elderly. You see uh, several ancient texts that was elderly at that point. Today, 60 doesn't seem elderly. Um, I work with a guy who's in construction on his knees, pounding nails every day, and he's 60 years old. He does not seem elderly at all. I think elderly ha- has changed a little bit. I think 60 is a general description of what an elderly person is, le- is categorized as. So, she's elder- so this person is elderly. She's been a wife of one husband, or one, one man, woman, parallel to the elder, supposed to be one woman man. There's a faithfulness emphasis there, not necessarily that they were actually married or 
that they haven't had a spouse die and then married again kind of thing. Focus on the faithfulness. Having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has carefully afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Basically a list of things saying, look, she has to be evidently marked by good works. Faithful and pure, servants of all, slaves to righteousness, these kinds of things. Why? The woman, th- this, these widows who are being enrolled, like officially, almost like on a kind of regular salary from the church kind of thing, because verses 11 through 15 show the consequences of why she has to have such a high qualification caliber for being on this regular support. Refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. I think he's, he's saying it, this desire is draw them away from Christ. It's not saying marriage is inherently drawing away from Christ. But marriage is desirable. It's a good thing. And it's the normal means that a woman w- would have provision in ancient society. So that desire is just fueled and can become kind of a desperation. And I know we've never seen a woman who's married someone they shouldn't have married. But it happened in the ancient world. So he's saying, don't enroll the younger widows because they're still marryable. <laughs> they're still at the age of marriage, and that's gonna, that can easily be something that where they're desperate, there's no eligible guys, they get married to one that they, sh- they shouldn't, and you normally take on the faith of your husband in the ancient world. So that's why I say, and they would leave the faith. So younger widows, encourage them to marry within the faith instead of enrolling them on the widow's list. Same rules as for young people, marry in the faith. Second reason why she should be of high character quality. Verse 13. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies. If she's on the support of the church, this regular income from the church, and she doesn't have that high character, she's prone towards the normative sins of life. Guys, we have, norm- we have normative sins that we're characterized by. Girls throughout history, you, you can read almost any historical document, this is a common, these are common vices of women, gossip and busybody. He just lists those as examples, I think. So you make sure the character is high so that you as a church aren't supporting that wrong character. And that's the last point he gives in verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Because again, if you as a church are funding someone to live a life of idleness, gossip, busybody, whatever d- direction of sin they're going, or, t- or someone who leaves the faith, you are declaring as a church saying, we su- we're supporting that. We're funding that life. And that's a big consequence. Everyone can say, oh, well, the gospel isn't really needed then. We can all just do whatever we want because you, suppo- you guys support this. We don't want that. So that's, that's why the widows who we enroll and regularly support as a church need to have high character. Marriage is desirable position easily leads to the sins of idleness and what we're supporting 
declares what's good, and the, ch- and the world sees that. Now, for us in this context, whether this church or even in this society, do you guys have a list of widows that you guys enroll and keep on a kind of salary? No. It's very foreign to us. Should we? I mean, that's what you have to, th- you have to think about for yourselves. But first of all, we live in a pretty economically successful society. So most widows aren't in that position of need. Second, most people have kids to take care of them, right? Third, there is a, we already have a society that's been built up with the governmental funds for providing for some of those needs. So all those things make it like a little awkward to say, how do we do this? Regardless of how we decide we should do that, I think it still gives us a clear, clear description of if we do fund people on a regular, in a regular way, we should be calling them to a high account of what their character should be like. Occasional gifts to people in, in need, whether they be just people in, in our community who aren't Christians or somebody who just comes in for a need, I think those are, those are fitting. This is calling about regular support. That's why the next section he goes on to how do we um, honor elders with how we pay them. It's a similar aspect of that regular enrollment of pay, income. So perhaps the more applicable part for us directly is that first half, that undergirding Paul laid out, taking care of our households. Because first, it pleases God. Second, it keeps the faith. And third, it keeps the church unburdened. All things we don't usually think about in caring for our parents. Or on the flip side, caring for our kids. But that first one especially, pleasing God, should drive us in all that we do, and especially these things. We want to please Him. So for this week, the challenge would be to show our godliness in our family, immediate household, and then what we can do for our relatives beyond, and then also within our church, the household of God. We should seek to please Him. Parents, how do we seek to please Him with our kids? Do we raise them in a way where they would be the the kind of people who would be taking care of their parents someday? Do we model that to them in how we take care of our parents? If you're a kid of any age, how are you doing with honoring your parents? Do you do it to, to please God? Is that one of the ways you seek to please God? It should be. But also, on the flips, on the other side of the widow's aspect, that those character qualities, those descriptions should be something that we'd all want to have described of us. To be marked by a hope set upon God and not a hope in self-indulgence. He says, in verse 7, Command these things as well, so that they may be above reproach, without reproach, both the kids and the widows. We all mess up. <laughs> we all need to repent and acknowledge the wrong we, we, we've done. 
And in this repentance, we show the people around us the gospel is for sinners. We're still in need of a Savior, even though he's already justified us. We still need that Savior. But we also declare, as we continue to seek to do and please God, that we are sinners gradually growing in righteousness, justification and sanctification. We do that as we seek to please him. Hopefully that's been helpful for just a reminder, maybe some new motives to think on while we do these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for addressing parts of life we don't even usually think of. Uh, may you help us to walk in faith as those who love you and want to please you, as those who seek to have your gospel known for the goodness that it is, as those who want to have it, the church, your body, succeed. Help us to figure out how we can walk that out in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.